Last week we looked at the first section of 1 Corinthians 11. Talked about head coverings and, and the importance of knowing who we are in Christ, knowing who we are and what we're called to be as men and women of God and what that means even in a gender-specific way that there are unique and special differences between the genders that we should be embracing. And we're still kind of in the same section of 1 Corinthians 11, but Paul's going to, this week, discuss a different aspect of something else he wants to address, and so we're no longer going to talk about that. But he's still kind of, and he's going to remain in this kind of larger context of church and church order and church structure and because there's a lot of things happening in the church in Corinth that he feels like need need some improvement, need to be addressed. And so this week, um, the title is Division and the Lord's Supper. So we're going to read verses 17 through 34. Part of what I like to do, like you guys know, when I teach is to kind of help you understand how to understand these things. And so I like to figure out context and, and ask the questions like, what does he mean by that? And so like starting in verse 17, the first thing he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because when you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. When he says, but in giving this instruction, what is he talking about? Is he talking about what he said before concerning head coverings? Or is he talking about what he's going to say after this. And I believe he's talking about what he's going to say after this. In giving this instruction, in this instruction that I'm giving right now, I don't praise you. And the reason I think that is because, I've mentioned this before, but Paul tends to always have a certain pattern when he's going to confront somebody. He tries to find something good to identify first before he criticizes. And he did that last week. If you remember in verse 2 of this chapter, he said... I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you, but I want you to understand, and then he goes into the discussion about order in the church and males and females and head coverings, and so he, he praised them first for this thing, but then this, and so now today he says now, in giving this, so I think he's going to, I think he mentions that in, in the context of what's coming next, and the difference is he has nothing that he can praise them about in this. What he's going to mention now is so serious that there's, he can't find anything positive to say first. So it wouldn't make sense that he was saying that concerning what he had just said, because concerning what he had just said, he had praised them first. So he said in verse 2, I praise you for this, but this. And now he's saying, but in this thing I'm going to say now, I don't praise you. And so I think it's a new, he's, he's, it's a new context, it's a new topic, and so that's concerning what he's going to say next. And it's so serious that he really can't find anything to praise them about in it. So there's basically two things that he's going to correct them on. And they are related. Uh, the first thing is division. Division in the church. And the second thing is the Lord's Supper. And they are related. Paul's going to describe how division in the church affects how we participate together in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and so, let's first talk about divisions, because Paul mentions that first. In verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, so he's talking about in the church setting, when you all come together, I hear 
that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Now, when he says, I hear, who did he hear this from? Do you all remember? Chloe? Remember Chloe? In 1 Corinthians 1.11, he said, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe, or by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So he's getting back to that. I hear that there are um, divisions among you. And then he says, and in part, I believe it. Now, does he mean, I only believe it partially? Chloe told me, but I kind of don't believe her. I only partially believe it. I don't think that's what he means. I know there's different translations that we all read from here, but I think what he's saying there isn't, I only believe that partially, but what he's saying is, part of the reason why I believe that is the following. So it's not just that Chloe said it, but he says, in part I believe it for, and he continues. So when he says, in part I believe it, what he's saying, I believe, is, here is part of the reason why I believe there are divisions among you. Not just because Chloe said it, but also because of this. And then verse 19. There must be factions among you, so that those are who are approved may become evident among you. So first, factions, which is translated many different ways. How did yours say it, Samuel? What? Instead of factions in verse 19? Uh, it, it said factions. Okay, what did yours say, Eric? In verse 19, what does it say? It's necessary that there are groups among you. Groups. Now that's actually a great translation of that word. What translation is that? I'm just kidding. It's common English. Common English? Okay. That's a great translation of that. So that word factions um, is translated many different ways. It might be translated as a sect, like a, a sect of Judaism, like they called Christianity a sect, same word, um, or like a heresy or a political or religious party or group or affiliation. So this is basically a more specific way of saying division. It's not just that there is difference of opinion in a church and there's kind of a little bit of disagreement. Paul's talking very seriously now about a, a severe and serious kind of separation. And so he's saying not just that there's division, but that there's like actually groups forming. And then he says two things in this verse that are actually kind of interesting. He says, there must be this. And then he says, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So it's confusing because in one sense, Paul is saying a negative thing. He's saying, there's a problem in your church. There's division. And then he's going to mention the Lord's Supper. That's a problem. And this problem of division, I, I believe it. Not only because Chloe said it, but also because, and then he says, almost as if it's a positive thing, this must happen so that those that are approved can become evident among you. So what does this mean? Because he began in a negative tone saying, I can't find any reason to praise you. And then he says, there are divisions, and part of the reason why I believe is because there have to be these groups forming. And he doesn't mean must be, as like, like in English you can say, there must be like a presumption, like I'm, I'm presuming or I'm assuming this is the case. He's actually saying, no, that this has to happen. There must be these kinds of groups forming. And then he says, so that those who are approved may become evident. There must be. There have to be factions. There have to be groups. That's a negative thing, but he's saying it has to happen. 
Do you see in the, I'm not sure, on all different translations that are, that are that you're reading from, I'm not sure that's clear in all those translations, but that's basically what he's getting at is, this is a negative thing, but it has to happen. And if you, if you read it that way, it might remind you of something that Jesus said once in Matthew 18, verse 7. In Matthew 18, verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. So even Jesus says, stumbling blocks are going to come, it's inevitable, but woe to the person by whom those come. And so Paul seems to be saying a similar thing here by saying there's this negative thing happening in your church. There are quarrels, there are divisions, but that has to happen in order to prove who's truly a believer. I think it's what Paul is saying. And in fact, there's one commentator that I read a lot, um, Charles Ellicott from the 19th century. I think he's an Anglican guy. He wrote that um, Justin Martyr, who's this Christian apologist from like 150 AD, super early church, that this guy, Justin Martyr, actually used the same word that Paul uses here for factions or groups to refer to Jesus' teaching on stumbling blocks. So Justin Martyr made that connection way back then that what Jesus was talking about and what Paul was talking about is the same thing. Unfortunately, Ellicott didn't mention where in Justin Martyr's writings that was. That would have been helpful. But to me, this is really enlightening. And really freeing. Um, when I think about Protestant Christianity, you know, I love the history of the Protestant Reformation. Do all of you kind of know like what happened, how we're here today and we're not Catholic? Do you all know that kind of story? Mm-hmm. Justin Martyr, not Justin Martyr, <laughs> that was earlier. Um, Martin Luther, all right, John Calvin, these greats, these guys, Zwingli even, um, these early reformers. That's a great history we can be proud to have been a part of. It was very important. But often I think about the current state of the church as a whole and the reality that there's never been a time in church history like the time since the Reformation in terms of church division. There has never been so much division in the church as a whole, as there's been since the Reformation. And that's always kind of bothered me. See, the Reformation wasn't the first split either. Do you all know about the great schism of like of 10, 1054? That was when the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church split over what you might think are small issues when you read about it. But back then there was a lot of underlying issues happening. But, you know, Rome was so far away and it was growing so rapidly, and they needed to respond to heresies that were happening that weren't happening necessarily in the East, and they could never as a whole agree on stuff, and they all came together for a big old council, and it was so much effort that Rome decided on their own to change something in a creed without the, the agreement. It was the first creedal change that had happened outside of the universal church. And that, along with other things, turned out that the Pope just became the leader of that. They just segmented off. They were no longer part of the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox went their own way, and for now, more than almost a thousand years later, they're still separate. But even with that great separation, both sides still basically maintained some kind of sense of there is 
ahead that kind of tells us what church government should look like, tells us what church worship should look like, tells us what tradition teaches us, tells us what to believe, and it's this kind of hierarchical structure. The Roman Catholics look to the Pope and to their certain bodies of government. The Orthodox had their, their bishops and their sort of Pope papal figures and their idea of government. And so it still wasn't as chaotic. They still sort of, even if there are like some differences, there are some more charismatic Catholics and some that are less charismatic. You have some differences, but for the most part, it's still pretty unified. But then it's almost as if the Reformation happens and pretty immediately, like we love the idea of sola scriptura, right? Like scripture alone, that's our authority. No matter what the church says, if it's against scripture, we're going to believe this. And the problem was then, we couldn't all agree on what it said. <laughs> and so in one sense, we're like, hey, scripture alone. We can't all agree on it, though. And so, like, we have this Reformation, and all of a sudden you've got Luther and Calvin, who are these early guys, and they meet, and they can't even agree. And Zwingli's out there, and you've got all this, and you've got Lutherans and Calvinists, and you've got Methodists, and you've got all these different denominations. It's like sheep with no shepherd, in a sense, right? It's kind of very, very chaotic. It's almost like a second Tower of Babel. And so I've always looked at that, and that's kind of burdened to me, because I think about Christ returning for his church one day, and seeing his church in the present state, and I kind of wonder, like, is he just not going to come back until we resolve this stuff? Is he kind of waiting around for us to reunify so that when he comes back, he can come back for his church that's beautiful and glorious and unified, and there's no division anymore? And that's kind of how I've thought about it. And I've, and I've worried, and I've, and I've kind of thought, I've told Lindsay this, I've told you guys this, that I, I feel like we should have a heart towards reunifying, but then the question always becomes, well, then who's going to compromise on their convictions? Because these divisions happen for a reason, right? Like, I couldn't just tomorrow be like, okay, by the way, we're joining with the Presbyterian Church. We're going to start baptizing infants. Like, I can't just, I've got a conviction about that. And, I, and, and so these differences sort of matter. And I couldn't tomorrow be like, okay, we're going to join together with this charismatic church and we're going to start having these, these tunnels where we're, you know, we're, we're being slain in the spirit and we're all going to lay in the hallways and we're going to be laughing and doing cartwheels. And, like, I've got a conviction about that. I'm not that charismatic. But I'm also not totally... So I can't also join with the cessationists that are like, the gifts are all gone. They, they died with the apostles. There's no longer any Holy Spirit. Like I so these differences matter. And so when you, when you think about like, reunification and rejoining and, and how God's going to resolve all that, like it comes down to who's going to give up on their convictions. And part of that too is, you know, proper teaching of the word could have avoided a lot of this stuff. But I don't know, reading this verse, reading Paul's tone here, makes me wonder if some of this division is actually by God's design. And maybe you also have been at a point in time in life, church shopping, and maybe you've visited multiple churches and you've been like, I just can't find the ideal church that believes exactly like me, has the methods that I exactly approve of, has everything that I feel like I need spiritually, and so you end up settling into a church that does some of the things you like. Yeah, it could be better. But then you might find some people in that church that like really love God and they're sincere and you're like, how did you get here? Because like 
the teaching's not that great, or the worship isn't that great, or the, uh, you know, the, the leadership is kind of weird, but here's this couple that is in this church that loves God, and how did that happen? Or maybe you meet friends in a Bible study that go to a different church, and you love them, and they're great, but you couldn't imagine going to their church because their church believes some weird things or does some weird things, but, but this couple's great. Then maybe you start to wonder, like, is that part of God's design? And so in the past, this kind of church division has bothered me. Churches that are kind of weird, it's kind of bothered me. But now I'm starting to wonder, could it be that God, first of all, is intentionally placing strong Christians in struggling churches so that God can have a light in a dark place? And is that why, in one sense, we can't find like just the church where everything is great and all the good Christians go there? And then all these churches are like abandoned, like all the bad churches are just like, they've got nobody in there. Could it be that God has designed it so that the strongest Christians get moved around the country to different places so that they get put into churches and can shine light in those churches so that the churches aren't completely dim, aren't completely dark? Maybe God is putting lights in churches that are suffering? Could that be? And could it be that God causes divisions to happen sometimes so that he can weed out the, 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 the real Christians from the fake ones? Could it be that Jesus looked ahead thousands of years into the future of the church and saw that there would be a need sometimes for division? And you might remember this if you've been with us long enough, but back in John 6, when Jesus started teaching these really weird things about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and if you don't do this, you're not worthy of me. And he was speaking in metaphors, but using really harsh terms. And at that point, a lot of people left him. And I, when I taught through that, I explained how part of what Christ was doing was drawing a line in the sand because he had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee and a whole crowd had followed him like, hey, where'd you go? We didn't see where you went. And he's like, you're all just following me for the food. And then he does this metaphor that's really hard to understand parable, basically drawing a line in the sand. It says that at that time, many left him and stopped following him. And so there are times when a big crowd gathers, when in Jesus' own ministry, he did things to draw a line to make a clear distinction between these are my followers and these are not my followers. And could it be that God might be using sometimes church division for the same purpose. And I even began thinking about, I've mentioned before the story of Mars Hill Church. It was this mega church. Mark Driscoll, this mega church guy, multiple campuses, thousands and thousands every Sunday going to Mars Hill. And then it turned out that behind the scenes, he was not really the best of leaders. He was very verbally abusive to a lot of his staff. He was very dominating. He was very power hungry. And it all came out at once to where either he quit or they fired him or it was either way, he stepped down. The church decided to not try to continue without him. And suddenly from one Sunday to the next, thousands and thousands were without a church. And so all the churches in the area became very overwhelmed because they were getting hundreds of new people every week asking questions like, what are your views on this? What are your beliefs on that? Where do you stand on this? Because they were trying to find something that could fit them. And that was a very tragic situation. But could God have been partially using that too in this global thing? I mean, Mars Hill wasn't just big locally. They were big globally. 
They had like these viral YouTube videos. I mean, could it be that God used this to say, many are following a personality, many are following a style, but I'm going to now see who's mine. And this man who behind the scenes had gotten involved in some kind of sinful stuff, which maybe he's repented of now. I don't know the guy, who knows? He stepped down, this whole thing falls apart, and God's like, okay, now let's see who just stops going to church and who finds somewhere else where it might not be their thing, but now they're going to bless some other church. Because Mars Hill, for all of its you know negativity at the leadership level, had some very solid teaching. The people that left those churches, when they were going to other churches and asking questions, they were asking deep theological questions like, are you a hyper-Calvinist? Are you a double predationist? What's your views on the millennial predestination? You know, like they, were, they knew their stuff, and so they had been taught well. There was some good fruit that came out of that, and now there's this opportunity for those to find themselves in other churches, and maybe they could have began serving there, helping there, using their gifts there. So reading this passage today, talking about division, but this weird phrase where he says, there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you got me to really think again about God is sovereign even over denominations, even over church splits. And maybe it's not necessary for us to find a way back to being perfectly unified before he returns. Maybe it's enough that we're following our convictions, humbly seeking him, open to adjusting our beliefs based on what the Bible says, and then just leading the rest up to God. And if God comes back and we're still divided, it'll be sad because he doesn't want disunity, but at the same time, he's used it. He's used it to separate the real from the fake. So that's certainly at least something worth considering. And it's changed my view on division and even in my own life and things that have happened to me, things that I've been part of in terms of having to leave churches and dealing with all that. It's caused me to kind of rethink like God, God might have been in that. God might have been using that for a reason. So interesting. Okay, so that's the first issue. Paul's saying this is bad that you're divided. It's bad, but God might still be using it but it's still a negative thing, and he's going to explain how it's affecting the Lord's Supper. So in verse 20, he says, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's like, y'all aren't getting together for a communion. And so, and we've read this before, but verses 20 through 22, um, he repeats the fact at the end of verse 22 that I've got nothing to praise you for in this. There's nothing positive here. And you might remember that in the early days of the church, the churches weren't meeting in the morning. They were meeting in the evening, day to day, like every day, house to house, they were meeting, and it wasn't very official at the very beginning of it, because it was mostly Jews that were believers, and they thought that Christianity was the real Jewish, it was like the completion of Judaism. So they were still going to synagogue, because they were still Jews, and they were trying to, to, to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, so their, their Sabbath day was synagogue, and then during the week they were getting together in house to house, but... You know, they kept getting kicked out of synagogues and called heretics, so they couldn't do that anymore. And also, the more Gentiles that got saved, well, they weren't going to go to synagogue because they never went to synagogue. And so suddenly they began to meet once a week out of necessity because they were kicked out of the synagogue and because of the Gentiles. And even that, at first, was still in the evening. We saw in, uh, in Acts 20, when Paul went to Philippi, that said um, in Acts 20, verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came 
at Troas within five days. And there at Troas, we say it's seven days, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we'd gather. So they'd gather in the evening in this upper room, and there were lamps that they'd have lit. And so they met in the evening. And they mentioned breaking bread. Uh, now, um, and back then, it wasn't just like wafers they'd break and, and wine, and that was it. It was a meal. There's this Hebrew prayer that I can't say in Hebrew, but that is always recited in traditional, when you're breaking bread before a meal, you say this saying, it's basically, you know, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. And they'd be reminded of the bread from heaven, the man that came down, they'd break this bread. But it was like a symbol of the whole meal beginning. So that's how they began it. But then they'd eat together, and there'd be wine involved. And so when they're meeting in the evenings, they would also be eating together, not just having a teaching, but having a meal. And it wasn't just crackers and wine. And later on, it kind of turned to being morning instead of night, and that's not really relevant to today's teaching, but I've mentioned it before. But at this point, when Paul's writing, they're still meeting at night, and they're still having these meals. They haven't, they haven't changed to later on in church history where they began to just have communion, like, like wafer and wine. That was really out of convenience because as the church grew, it was hard to have a meal with like 200 people where everyone was getting something. It was hard to organize that. And so I could just imagine it became easier to just have like an official, like just bread and wine. But when Paul's writing, he's writing it to a church that's meeting in the evening and they are having a whole meal together. And the problem is that the division in the church is so severe that when they're coming together, they're not sharing. They're not even sitting together. These groups that are forming, they're not even sharing their stuff. And so one person brings food and eats it all. One person brings wine and drinks it all and is getting drunk because of an empty stomach and they're not sharing food. You know? So you get this idea that they were kind of like potlucking it, kind of like we do. People are bringing something to share, but then they weren't sharing. And then one person who couldn't afford it maybe comes and has nothing to eat. And this, this is like their meal. It's like in a church, could you imagine if us of this size, like what, one family eating here, one eating in there, one eating in there, no one's talking, and I've just got the wine in the corner because, you know, like I, I preach my heart out and no one listens, so I'm just drinking back here in the corner. <laughs> that's like, that, that's what was happening. And he says, this is like very serious. I can't praise you in this. And then verse 22, don't you have houses to eat and drink? He's basically saying, you might as well stay home. Like if you're going to sit by yourself and eat by yourself and not talk to anybody at church, just stay home. The division was so severe. And so Paul then reminds him of the instruction where he says, I received from the Lord, that's what I delivered to you. And then he says, in the night that he took bread, when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So most likely Jesus also, because it was Passover, most likely they were doing a traditional, they were doing a Passover meal. He was reciting the Hebrew stuff. But as he did it, he then added to it and said, also, this is this is." This is my body. Remember when he said, I am the bread of life? Same thing. The Jews and bread, that was, there was a lot of meaning packed into that for them. The manna, the heavenly bread, God's provision, the whole thing. And Jesus saying, I am that bread. This is now my body broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then it said in the same way in verse 25, after supper. So again, remember, they're eating a whole meal here. So Paul instructed them saying, this is how you do it. You break the bread. You do the prayer thing. You remember Christ. And then after the meal, they'd have wine. And say, this is the, the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And so it wasn't just a wafer and wine, it was a full meal. And that's how we do it here. And in case you're wondering, that's why we don't have a separate time of com- like a, a communion table where we dim the lights down and put on a pretty song and we all kind of come. It's because for us, as long as we can, we're doing it that way. We're having a meal together, somebody prays. And we're supposed to be, like Paul says here in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in other words, as we're having that time together, we're not just talking about what diet we're on. You're not just picking on me for only eating meat. We're not just talking about our plans for the week, but we're actually having fellowship. And the way you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, as you, it's, 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 it, anything that has to do with who Christ is and what he's done for your life and how it's affecting you daily, how God is using you, what God is speaking with you, what God is sharing with you, what do you need prayer for? It should be a time of, of fellowship where we're actually talking to one another and not just like making jokes and you know that sort of It shouldn't be so casual that we're just getting together, eating food, and leaving. Because otherwise, we're not really doing the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time of, yes, there's a meal, but it's remembering Christ and it's fellowship. We can talk about the sermon, what God's doing in our lives. We can ask how someone's week has been, how can I pray for you? And so here comes Paul's warning in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So, all of you who are believers have probably heard, like, don't take communion in an unworthy manner. And usually what they say that means is, look at yourself and think, is there any unconfessed sin? Is there anybody whose feelings you've hurt that you haven't apologized for? Like, don't take communion before you make that right. Don't take communion if you sinned at all. Like, repent first and all that. Well, that's not the way Paul means it in this text. And I want to just give you the most obvious understanding of that from this text. First, let's look at some of the hard verses. Because he mentions things like, if you do this in an unworthy way, you're guilty, some of you are sick, some have died. So what does all that mean? Well, I take the most obvious meaning here, that Paul was being truthful they were, eat, they were doing this in an unworthy way and it was making God unhappy and he was disciplining the church. Some were getting sick and some were dying because of this. That doesn't mean everyone who's sick and dying has sinned in some way. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the apostles about how they sold stuff and they died because of their lie. Well, not everybody who lies dies, at least not right away. Right? We all die eventually. But God's not killing everybody who lied. But he did kill them. And there has to do, there's something that has to do with the beginnings of a church, a new beginning, and God setting up standards and saying, this is not going to be acceptable. And the first lie that happens, boom, these people died. And in the same way, early church, Paul saying, you all were taking this in an unworthy way, and that's because, and that's why some of you are now sick and dying. God is punishing you for this. That doesn't mean all of us are going to get sick or dying, but it, it could mean that. You could get sick. God could do that. If you were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, God could make you sick. He did it to them. But what it's saying, I'm just going to believe what it says. So it was a very serious issue, and so we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner, and we should examine ourselves and judge the body rightly. But what does he mean by all this? Well, let me just tell you that Paul gives the answer to what he means by this, starting in verse 33. This is how to not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So then, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, 
so you won't come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So the way Paul means this is very clear. It's very clearly about division in the church and how that division affects the time of communion and fellowship and the Lord's Supper together. They're coming together and they're so separate that one person's bringing food and eating it all himself. One person's drinking wine and getting drunk by himself. One person's bringing nothing and having no one to fellowship with because they're all divided. That's the unworthy manner Paul is talking about. He's not talking about you better not drink the wine or eat the bread if you have any kind of sin you've forgotten to confess or else you're going to get sick and you might even die. That's not what Paul is saying. So, just to consider that, that's the plain meaning of it. Um, and lastly, this thing about eating at home is an interesting thing to consider. There's always this joke in churches about how people towards the end of a sermon, they start getting hungry. The last like 15 minutes is like, oh, my stomach is like making noises and where are you going to eat? And so the sermon ends and pastors always joke like you say amen and the first thing you hear is, so where do you want to go eat? You know, there's all these kind of jokes about that. But I think what Paul is saying here is worth considering. If you're that kind of person where, like, by 11.45, you can't even think, you can't even hear me because you're just like, oh, my gosh, I'm so hungry, you might want to consider eating more at home first so you're not distracted by that. Because the purpose of our time together after church and food is not just food. There's a lot more to it than that. So imagine there's a Sunday where somebody brings food, but, oh, no, they got in a car accident on the way. They're fine but they're waiting for the police to show up and their car's got to get towed. And meanwhile, their food also doesn't arrive. Then imagine somebody else was bringing in you know, soup or whatever and it spilled outside because it was rainy and slippery. And then imagine Lindsay's you know, Instapot breaks so her food's not done. And so maybe church ends, we say amen, and all we have is like chips. And then we're all like unhappy and super angry about it. And you know, oh. Well, if we had the right perspective about what the Lord's Supper is, we would just eat those chips anyway and still be happy and have fellowship anyway and just recognize, hey, I can deal with not eating for another hour or whatever it is. But we could also have a bigger breakfast at home to make sure we're not so starving by noon that if that happened, we'd be losing our minds. Oh, I need to get some food in me now. Because the point of the Lord's Supper that we have together is fellowship, ministering to one another. It's part of our church together. It's not just the food. It's actually growing in life together, getting to know one another. How can, I, how can I bless you? How can I be praying for you? It's not just food. And this thing, you know, this, this has really become like a culture of our church, and it kind of happened spontaneously. I mean, Pam and Malik, and you would remember that too because you were there. We were just like, meeting in some church. We decided one Sunday to meet at a house just because we couldn't meet at this church at one time. And we were all, we had a service and then we had some lunch afterwards. We're all sitting in the back in the grass and I think everyone was just kind of like, gosh, this felt really nice. You know, so we just kind of kept, kept it in the home, kept doing lunches and we just kind of kept doing it. And it. But it's been years now that we've done it this way and it's kind of become a part of a culture of our church that's really important. But I do, I've said this in the last couple of weeks, I'll say it again, um, it, we might get to a point in our church where it's not working for everybody. People can't always stay, but I don't want anybody to feel like they can't ever have the Lord's Supper with the church. And so if you ever feel like there's a need where we need to have some sort of like shorter version of that, maybe we say a quick prayer and break some bread and do some wine or whatever like before, like before the main meal just so that those that need to leave can do so. Like let me know. Talk to me about that because as a church – we should be able to all participate in the Lord's Supper in some way. And if we get to a point where 
the whole long, hours-long lunch thing that just isn't working for you, like, let's figure that out as a church. But the main thing here is, again, church division, it's a bad thing, but God can use it, which is kind of cool. But it will affect our ability to um, have communion together if we're divided and eating in different rooms. And actually, let me close with a story. I don't think I've ever shared the story. Um, I had a dream once. So I was in the church. Maybe I've shared this. I don't know. I was in the church, and there were a lot of issues going on. Um, I was in a position there where it wouldn't have been right for me to stay in that church but not be who I was. I had gotten to a certain position where I was pretty public and um, trying to work out some differences with the other leadership there and trying to figure things out, not sure what to do. And uh, I was just kind of praying about, like, I don't want to leave. I don't like the idea of quitting. I don't want to cause a division. I don't want to do things. I had this dream that didn't make sense to me at the time, and I dreamt that I was in the forest, and there were all these big old trees, and some storm was coming. And I'll explain why this makes sense in a second. But as the storm was coming, I'm seeing people that I knew from this church that were all hiding in trees. They were, like, getting down in trees and hiding. And there's this tree next to me, and I'm trying to, like, get into it, but I won't fit. And so I began to, like, rip out these roots of this tree to, like, make room for myself, but I'm still not fitting, and the storm is coming. And it was one of those dreams where, like, I woke up and I, it wouldn't leave me. I kept thinking, there's something to this dream. Like, could God be trying to say something? But it makes no sense to me. And so I tell Lindsay, and she kind of laughs. She's like, you're kidding. I'm like, what are you yeah. She's like, you don't know what this means? I'm like, I have no idea what it means. To her, it was obvious. She was like, the tree is that church. And the longer you try to stay there, you're actually hurting that church by staying. We're so different that by staying there, it's like you're trying to rip out roots and you're actually hurting that church. And so it would be better for that church if we would just quietly leave instead of trying to stay there and just like being a sore thumb and causing problems. And um, so thinking about that now and think about how God might use church division sometimes, it would have really affected our fellowship in that church and our ability to have communion in that church and feel like we were one in that church if I was continually causing like a problem for the leadership there and like continually like butting heads with the leadership. It would have been a problem. It would have been similar to like eating in different rooms, you know, all by yourself and having these differences of opinion. And so if in a church you really can't come to an agreement and you pray about it and you're talking through it and you're looking at scripture and there begins to be this divide, that might be better to say, you know, let's just part ways in love and in peace and not in anger, but because we're not going to be able to have real unifying communion together with these differences. And maybe God can use that. And maybe both, kind of like Paul and Barnabas, maybe God can use both better separately. And so maybe that dream was God's way of showing me, like, unity isn't always the answer. It's preferred. Unity's great. But if you can't get that and, you know, it takes two to tango, if they're not coming together with you on that, maybe there's a point where it's just going to cause friction and maybe it's time to, to, to go somewhere else and, and stop causing that friction. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Um, I pray that you would teach your people how to follow you properly, teach them how to know your word, teach them how to be able to read the Bible and learn from it and apply it to their life. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd be with us. And in the coming weeks when we begin to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and what those are and how they work and, and what that means for a church setting, I pray you'd be with us, guiding us and showing us as a church how we can be honoring to you, how we can glorify you. Help us just to grow in unity.
but also help us be the kind of people that shine your light in the world so that we are also, we're not just taking in, taking in, taking in, but we're also going out and we're reaching more people with the gospel and your, your gospel is spreading and more people are getting saved. Help us be those kinds of people that are shining the light in church, but also in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.